Our Father, we recognize the fact that uh, we do live in a broken world. We're going to speak briefly about that this morning. But whether we speak about it overtly or just understand it, we, we are just so cognizant of the fact of the brokenness of the world, the weakness of the world, the sinfulness of the world, and all its brokenness constantly surrounding us. And so we entrust ourselves to you. We thank you, Father, for the reality that we have just sung of, that Christ is coming soon. He is returning for his own, and we might rest in him. Soon is coming a day when we will see him, and we will know him, and we'll know the heights of his grace. We thank you for that. We thank you, Father, for the reality that Christie's father, James, knows and sees and experiences the fullness of that grace even now. Thank you for the confidence that that is to that family. And might they continue to find rest and comfort and peace and sufficiency in that saving grace in which he believed. And might their own hearts be comforted by their own saving grace as well. Now, Father, would you guide us and direct us in your word? Might we be instructed by it, encouraged by it? And this morning, particularly, might we be strengthened? We are frail and weak, and we need strength. Might we see the sufficiency of the strength that you provide for us? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I suppose everyone likes a happy surprise ending to a story. And the Bible is filled with happy surprise endings. Tragedies and loss that are unexpectedly, triumphantly turned into victory. One writer calls them redemptive reversals. I love that. Uh, These are stories that begin appearing on the Bible almost on the very first page and they persist through that book that you hold in your hand. Abraham and Sarah, who became pregnant long after regular child birthing years had passed. Joseph, who was sold into slavery and anonymity, but resurfaced as the second most powerful man in Egypt and probably at that time in the world. A nation of two million Israelites fleeing out of Egypt, finding themselves staring the Red Sea in their faces, the Egyptians bearing down on them from behind, seeming no escape, and the walls of the sea opened and they crossed on dry land. The last man gets through and the waters come crashing down behind them, drowning all the Egyptians. What a great story. Ruth, whose husband died unexpectedly and early, who was childless in a foreign country and exile and yet received a husband and became part of the messianic lineage. I mean, who thinks up stuff like this? You know. Three men thrown into a bellowing furnace of fire and surviving. And for added measure, their friend, a few years later, tossed into a den of lions who were starving. And he spent the night petting them and talking to them, being rescued out. And then as soon as the others were thrown into the pit, they were killed even before they hit the ground. A group of 12 unknown, uneducated men being used to influence the world, even to this very generation today. And of course, then there's the story of Jesus Christ himself who was crucified and buried with such effect that the disciples despaired over his death. And then he was resurrected and then he was ascended. And now he sits at the right hand of God, co-regent over all things. The Bible is absolutely packed with these reversals. And among the sweetest reversals known are those where God's enemies become his friends through grace. God saves and defends and provides for those who had been opposed to him and gives them benefits that are 
unimaginable to them. It's just that kind of story that we find in Zechariah chapter 8. If you haven't opened your Bibles to that passage yet, I invite you to open your copy of the Scriptures to Zechariah chapter 8. And just by way of reminder, or if you're new with us this morning, morning, and you haven't been to Zechariah in a while, find the Gospels, find Matthew, and then turn back to the Old Testament, just a handful of pages. Zechariah is the next to the last book in the Old Testament, and we are in chapter 8. In chapter 8, uh, we find ourselves 15 years after the exile of uh, the nation of Israel into captivity and Babylon has ended. The people have returned. They've come back to the land of Israel and they are in the land of Israel. And they were fearful of rebuilding the temple. They'd begun the temple. They laid the foundation for the temple. They faced opposition and the opposition shut them down. And so for 15 years, nothing was done. Along came a couple of prophets named Haggai and Zechariah. They called them to action. And now for two years, they have been building. And halfway through the building process, roughly, we think, in Zechariah chapter 7 and 8, a group of men from Bethel came to uh, the leaders in Jerusalem and said in chapter 7, verse 3, Shall I weep for the fifth month and abstain as have I done all these many years? In other words, we've been fasting for 70 years. Can we stop now? It just seems like this fasting process is done and we ought to be finished and everything is good. The, the, the temple is well on its way. Can we stop what we've been doing? They apparently believed that their safety was procured by ritualistic practices rather than by God's grace. So in Zechariah 7 and Zechariah 8, the Lord responds to that query. The query was made of the priests in Jerusalem, and instead of the priests answering, God answered. And he answered with four statements, two of which are given in chapter 7 and two of which are given in chapter 8. The two first oracles or declarations or revelations or prophecies, if you will. The first two oracles in chapter 7 are condemnations of the nation of Israel and their self-righteous, unrighteous thinking. The last two oracles given in chapter 8 are filled with astounding grace. It's one of those redemptive reversals. It's one of those unexpected changes that are dependent on God's grace. In the first part of chapter 8 that we saw last time, we understood that God's power and grace are adequate to provide for His people. In verses 9 to 17 that we're going to look at this morning, we will see that God's power and God's grace are adequate to reverse the fortunes of His people. Let me just read it for you, and then we will look at it. Zechariah 8, starting in verse 9. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong, you who are listening in these days to these words from the mouth of the prophets, those who spoke in the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid to the end that the temple might be built. For before those days, there was no wage for man or any wage for animal. And for him who went out or came in, there was no peace because of his enemies. And I set all men against one another. But now, I will not treat the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there will be peace for the seed. The vine will yield its fruit. The land will yield its produce. And the heavens will give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to inherit all these things. And it will come about that just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you that you may become a blessing. Do not fear. Let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, just as I purposed to do harm to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts, and I have not relented. So I have again purposed in these days to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. These are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. 
And let none of you devise evil in your heart against one another. And do not love perjury. For all these are what I hate, declares the Lord. In this passage again, we find that God's grace and power are adequate to reverse the fortunes of His people. That is exactly what He promises in these verses. And because of that, He calls the people to be strong and as a particular manifestation of their strength, not to be fearful. Because of what He has promised them, He says, they can be strong. And we will find in this passage in particular four calls to be strong. Four calls to be strong. And those calls to Israel to be strong also can stimulate and encourage our faith likewise to be strong in our day. Just by way of reminder about the context in which God is speaking. Again, chapter 7, there was condemnation of the Israelites for their presumption about the effectiveness of their fasting and their legalistic practices. In chapter 8, there's a transition not towards condemnation, but to encouragement and hopefulness. And the first part of this chapter, verses 1 to 8, are all about the coming of the Messiah who would establish his kingdom. We see that, for instance, in verse 3. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem would be called the city of truth. So God will come back to Jerusalem, the glory that departed uh, under Ezekiel will return and God will establish his millennial kingdom in Israel and the Messiah will reign with all of his glory from his throne in Jerusalem. And because the king is on his throne in Jerusalem, the city will then be called the city of truth and the mountain of God will be called the holy mountain. There will be found truth and holiness in all of their fullness in that city in that day. There would be peace and safety for all people, including the most vulnerable of the people. We find that in verse 4. God would draw His redeemed people back from all of the nations to Jerusalem under united kingdom where they would be His eternally. Thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 7, I'm going to save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. I will bring them back and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem. They will be my people. I will... Be their God in truth and in righteousness. We find Isaiah saying something very, very similar in the 43rd chapter of his prophecy, Isaiah chapter 43. He says in verses 5 to 7, Do not fear. I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east. I will gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. In other words, from every point on the compass, from all over the earth, I will bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. I will bring my redeemed people back and I will rule and reign in Israel on my throne. So we have in verses 1 to 8 of chapter 8, this glorious promise that the king will come and he will reign on his messianic throne. And these verses, starting in verses 9 to 17, draw out the implication of that future hope for the Israelites of that day. If that's what's coming, how should we live today? How, how should they in that day, conduct themselves in light of the coming of the Messiah and His kingdom. And the implication very clearly is, be strong. Finish the work. Get to work. Don't be idle and don't be fearful. And that hope for Israel directs us as well. In light of our confidence in Christ, How should we live today? Likewise, we should be strong. We should not fear. And we should trust, anticipate, be confident in the coming of the Messiah. Here then are four calls to be strong. Verse 9. Because God has promised, be strengthened to work. 
Again, I noted that there were some implications that God gave because of the coming of the Messiah. And the main implication that God drives out for his people is given to us in verse 9. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Again, the Lord of hosts is that title. It's used more than 50 times in this book. It means something like Lord Almighty. It is the one who is sovereign over all things. It refers to his omnipotent power. So the one who is omnipotent and reigns over all things and is supreme over all things says this. Because I'm supreme, let your hands be strong. And specifically, they are to be strong. That phrase, let your hands be strong, is tied to the end of the verse, to the end that the temple might be built. Don't stop. You're halfway. You think you've got it made, but be sure to finish the building of the temple. And just as God had told him that he would come in his glory to dwell in Jerusalem and that they would be safe in his kingdom, they are to work and to act and to labor. They might have read verses 1 to 8 and say, hey, God is coming. The Messiah is coming and he will reign on his throne and we don't, we don't have to finish this temple. Messiah is coming. Let him finish it. It's, it's his temple. Let him do the work. And they might have been tempted to, st- to think, let's stop. Let's relax. Let's kick up our feet. Let's put our feet on the ottoman. Kick up, kick on the ESPN. Watch the ball game and wait for Christ to come. No, no, no. The command is a reminder that in spite of the future promises, Christ is coming. The kingdom will be established. Yet despite that promise, there's still work that needs to be done. Don't stop. In light of the coming of the king, we can be hopeful. We can be anticipatory. But don't stop working. What then is the benefit of the promise for God for the future? I mean, if if Christ is coming and, and, and we still have to work, what's the benefit of knowing that he's coming? The benefit is that the Israelites could be certain that no matter what opposition they might face, God would accomplish his purposes. Keep working. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, it's laborious. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, there's opposition. Yes, the people are against you. But it will be accomplished. It will be fulfilled. And this very same principle is experienced by the nation when they entered the promised land. Keep your finger there in Zechariah 8 and turn back with me to the book of Joshua. I was reading in Joshua this week, Joshua chapter 1, and found the parallel to be particularly striking. Joshua chapter 1, just by way of reminder, Deuteronomy 34 is the death of Moses. Moses went up to the mountain to look into the land of Israel, the land that he was promised, but the land that he was also promised he would not actually go into, but only be able to see. And the Lord tells us in Deuteronomy 34, I believe it's four, three different times that Moses died. Moses, the servant of the Lord, died, verse 5. Verse 6, no man knows his burial place. And his his days, verse 8, came to an end. He died, he died, he died. He wants us to know Moses is dead. The greatest leader of the nation of Israel is dead. And now they're supposed to enter the land? And Joshua chapter 1 is a reminder from God to Joshua. Right on the heels of all those reminders, Moses is dead, Moses is dead, Moses is dead. Of what God will give to him. Verse 3, Joshua 1. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you. Verse 5. No man will be able to stand before you. Again, verse 5. I will be with you. I will not fail you. I will not forsake you. Verse 9. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Verse 11. The land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess it. It's yours. It's yours. It's yours. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. And you just think, well, the sea's going to part. It did. They're going to march in and everybody's going to fall over. Everybody's going to run. And it's no sweat, 
right? And what does God say to him? God repeatedly says, verse 6, be strong and courageous. Verse 7, only be strong and very courageous. Verse 9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. And it's a reminder to us that even though God is with the nation as they're going in, it doesn't mean He hasn't called them to work. He has. But in their work, He is sufficient for them. Be strong. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's laborious. Yes, there are challenges. Yes, there's opposition. It's a reminder that even though the Lord had called the nation to this task, the calling did not imply that it was going to be easy. Dare I even say it? There is inherent hardship involved in serving the Lord. But He wants us to know And he wants Israel to know in Joshua and then again in Zechariah and all points in between, I'm enough. I'm with you. And you will not be defeated, not because of you, but because of me. Just make sure you work. We find that very same thing in Haggai. We read it just a few minutes ago. Haggai chapter 2. Every promise, verse 5, that I made you, when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding your, in your midst. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and also the dry land. It's, it, he shakes the heavens and what falls out? All the coins. It's like kind of like turning your couch upside down, giving it a good shake and building your retirement account. Right? Verse 7, well, on what basis do I say that? I say it on verse 7. And they will come with all of the wealth of the nations and I will fill this house with glory. I'm going to take all of that wealth and I'm going to undergird the, the nation of Israel with it. It's all, it's all mine. It's all mine. He's with us. And this is true not just of Israel. It's true of us today as well he uses us brothers and sisters but he is our strength we labor we work we sweat we toil we pray but the source of our victory is never us it's always him it's always his grace and he makes us to labor to demonstrate we're inadequate You can't do it. You ever sat in a counseling room? You ever sat with a child or a parent that you were calling to repentance? You ever sat with a disciplee that you're trying to encourage to walk in the faith? You ever sat with a neighbor that you've been pleading with to come to Christ and you just... You just don't know what to do anymore. You've said everything you know to say and you've pled and you've wept and you've prayed... And there's this resistance. And you're working and you're laboring. You go home at night and you open your Bible and you're thinking, Lord, show me something in your word that's going to open this person's heart. And he's saying, work in that way and labor and pursue and understand it's all me. You work and I'll be with you and I'm sufficient for you. Where are they going to gain The strength that they will find from the Lord. He says, let your hands be strong. When he says, let your hands be strong, it's strong hands make for strong work, right? Build the temple. End of the verse. Where do they get that strength? Notice to whom the Lord is speaking. Let your hands be strong. Now he addresses those he's speaking, those who are to whom he is speaking. I think you know what I'm trying to say. Let your hands be strong. You who are listening in these days to these words from the mouth of the prophets. Which prophets? He identifies those who spoke in the day that the foundation of the Lord of hosts was laid. So the foundation was laid and they stopped working for 15 years. 
And at least two prophets came along and said, hey, get back to work. That's my short paraphrase. Who were those guys? Haggai, Zechariah. And the Lord is saying, you who listened to the words of Haggai and Zechariah and others, listen also now to my word and let your hands be strong. The implication of what God is saying is, have you not heard and have you not been hearing? The indication is that they are to be strengthened by listening to and obeying the word of the Lord. They were listening to the promises of God. And in listening to the promises of God, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you. I will accomplish, I will build, I will come. Listening to those promises, they would be strengthened. Strength for living is not gained by attempting to manipulate circumstances so that life is easy. You ever come across that? If I can just do this, then I can escape this little thing and I'm on easy street. That's not what's done. Life is inherently hard. I sin. You sin. We all sin. And we all live in a broken, sin-cursed world. I've heard some variation of that theme at least twice in direct statements this morning. And if we went up and down the rows, we could hear it about 225 more times. Life is hard. Life in the day of Zechariah wasn't easy. Life today isn't easy. But that does not mean it needs to overwhelm. There was strength for Israel in listening to the prophetic word of God. And there is strength for us in listening to the inerrant full word of God. Listen, there is no strength if you don't listen to God's Word. In fact, all you have to do is turn back one page to chapter 7, to this second oracle, verse 11, that God has just spoken. Speaking about the prior generation of Israel, He said they refused to pay attention and they turned a stubborn shoulder and they stopped their ears from hearing. They made their hearts like flint so that they could not hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by His Spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. If you don't listen and you don't heed, you will have no power And even worse, you'll fall under the discipline and perhaps even the wrath of God. There's no strength when you don't read the book and heed the book. There is great strength when you read the book and heed the book. Don, I'm going to steal from your thunder from this morning. Actually, you were stealing from me, but you didn't know it. It was already in my notes. (laughs) 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Uh, All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, reproving, correcting, for training of righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate for every task. Do you believe that? No, seriously, do you believe that? Do you believe that what's in this book is your adequacy? That's what, that's what Paul's saying in 2 Timothy. It's this book that's going to make you strong. This book that's going to equip you. This book that's going to give you something to fight with in this evil day. Just as the hearers in Zechariah's day had something to hear and to be strengthened by for their day. So here's the question. What's the intake of your Bible like? What's the evidence and fruit of your Bible intake like? What's the evidence of your lack of intake? Are you strong or are you weak? And does that reflect the nature of the intake of your Bible? Listen, friends, the Word of God is the source of your strength to work. What's your work? 
The Israelites had to build a temple in the face of opposition. What's your work? It might be parenting. It might be counseling. It might be husbanding or wifing. It might be working 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 hours a week. It might be teaching a Sunday school class. It might be teaching Iwana. What's your work? Whatever that work is, here's your strength. You have, you have nothing else. But when you have this, you have everything. I don't know what your pattern is for reading the Bible, for studying the Bible, for meditating on the Bible. I remember years ago, uh, probably 20 years ago, I was listening to a sermon by John Piper and he said um, he wanted to do a survey of his church to find out who was reading his Bible and how much they read their Bible. He said he was never so discouraged in all of his life. And I don't know what your intake is. I'm afraid to ask, frankly. I think, I think we love the Bible around here and I think a lot of you are doing a good job with it. But I also know that there are a number of you who aren't. And if you're struggling, if you're floundering, if you're weak, maybe that's the solution. That you're just weak in the Word and because you're weak, weak in the Word, you're weak in life. That's your strength. Because God has promised, because He's given something in His Word, be strengthened to work. Second calling. Because God has promised to be strengthened by grace. Oh, this is, you're going to love this, verses 10 to 13. Notice the word for, at the beginning of verse 10. He calls them to be strong to, to the end that the temple might be built, finished being rebuilt. For, because, before those days, before the days of the prophets, before Haggai and Zechariah spoke, there was no wage for man or any wage for animal. They're... They were, they were days of poverty. They were, they were days of deprivation. There was, there was lots of labor. There was lots of work and nobody was getting anything. Did you hear that in Haggai chapter one? As, as Roger read, read that early, you have sown much, but you harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. He's not advocating drunkenness, but he's saying there's so little to drink that even if you drank everything, you wouldn't get drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. He who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Isn't the Bible picturesque? It just kind of feels that way sometimes. You put your money in your pocket and you pull it out. And it's like, where, where did that go? There's no wages. There's no money. There's no food. The, the, the man works. There's nothing that he gains from his profit. The animal works. There's no crop to feed the animal. For him who went out, verse 10, or who came in, there was no peace because of his enemies. Someone has translated that or given the sense of that as they met trouble coming and going. You know what that's like. Some of you are nodding. Yep, that's, that's my life. I'm there. And the source of their problem, no peace, comes from the hands of their enemies. No peace. They're at war because of their enemies. The enemies are contrary, they're opposed, they're hostile. And then the last clause. This is stunning. There's no peace because of his enemies. Verse 10, and I set all men one against another. Within the land of Israel, it's not just opposition from without, there's opposition within there's hatred, animosity, conflict within, and God says, I put them against one another. I think we can take from that. They were sinning, and God let them reap the just fruits of their sin against one another. They experienced the natural consequences of disobedience and rebellion. Put it all together, what do you have? The nation was broke, broken financially, politically, militarily, and socially. Nothing was working. Nothing. It was like a barren Sarah, an imprisoned Joseph, an immigrant Ruth, and an exiled Daniel. Where's hope? I said a moment ago, you're going to love this. Notice verse 11. But now. <laughs> Don't you love those? It's just like the but God that shows up in Noah's life in Genesis 8 and Abraham's life in Genesis 17 and in our lives in Ephesians 2. But God, but now I, who's speaking? The Lord of hosts. 
the one who is almighty, the one who is omnipotent, the one who is sovereign over every army in heaven, on earth and under the earth. There is no one who is not underneath his authority. The omnipotent, almighty God says, I will not treat the remnant of this people as in the former days. What were the former days? That was verse 10. Everyone's hungry. Everyone's working. There's no profit. There's no sustenance. There's no provision. And this is going to be the opposite of that. There will be, verse 12, peace for the seed. What does that mean? There is peace from conflict and war. And so the farmer can go out and sow the seed in peace and the rains come and the sun comes and the crops grow and he's able to harvest in peace and get his crop without it, the crop being destroyed and taken away. There is peace for the seed. The vine will yield its fruit. Again, there's peace for such a length of time that the vine comes up, it grows And it comes to harvest and it's gathered in. The land will yield its produce and the heavens will give their due. The omnipotent one, Yahweh, sovereign God, acts. Previously there was work without profit. Now there's work with abundance of provision. In verse 10, they experienced the consequences of disobedience and rebellion. And now they experience the blessings of God's grace. And notice the last part of verse 12. And I will cause the remnant of this people to inherit all these things. The Lord is the source of the consequences of their rebellion and He is also the source of the blessings of their grace. The things that happen to them are not consequential. They're not just happenstance. It's not just a matter of, well, sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. No, it's God's hand directly directing what comes to fruition and what they gain from it. And then he uses a most astounding word. I'll cause the remnant of this people to inherit all these things. My brother sent me a a couple of pictures and a text yesterday. He went to see his son. They took a little trip and they went up to Toronto. And uh, Toronto sounds cold. And it is. It was snowing. And I looked. And it was going to be high of like 32 all day, snowing all day. And I thought, yeah, it's not 85 here, but it ain't snowing. (laughs) And there's a temptation to say, that's my inheritance for being a Texan. (laughs) Yeah, that's a little ostentatious, isn't it? Weather doesn't seem like an inheritance, does it? Is that what God's speaking of? All these things, crops, are an inheritance? I think he means us to understand something else. An inheritance goes way beyond physical provision, doesn't it? What's the inheritance he's talking about? I think he's talking about the inheritance when he says the inheritance of all these things. I think he's talking about the first eight verses. The inheritance when I'm exceedingly jealous for Zion and I will return to Zion and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and Jerusalem will be called the city of truth and I will bring back my people and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem and they will be my people and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. That's the inheritance. I'm going to give you the blessings of peace and prosperity in the land And I'm going to give you myself. That's the inheritance. That's the grace. And then God expands that even more. Verse 13. And it will come about that just as you were a curse among the nations. That is you were cursed by the nations. Experiencing judgment from the nations. And by the hands of the nations. Watch this. O house of Judah and house of Israel. 
So Israel went into captivity in 721 B.C. and about 115 years later, Israel started going into captivity in Babylon. Both of them had been taken captive, but separately as different nations. And now he says, you're coming back as one united people to experience my grace and my blessing. So as you were a curse among the nations, Judah and Israel, so I will save you. That's again, verse eight, so that you may become a blessing. In what sense is Israel a blessing? They're a blessing in the fulfillment of Abraham's covenant in Genesis chapter 12, a land and a seed and a spiritual blessing that's given to Abraham. And now All that flows from the nation of Israel comes through the nation of Israel. And God says, not only will I save you, but I will save people from all over the rest of the world as well. Gathering my spiritual people to myself. As one commentator has simply said, God's words, I will save you, make all the difference. (laughs) They're saved. And they experience the fullness of all the promises that were made to them beginning in Genesis chapter 12. And because of that grace, God makes one more point. Do not fear, verse 13. Let your hands be strong. You notice something about that phrase? He says that in in verse 9. Very first words, let your hands be strong. Now again, the last words in verse 13, let your hands be strong. That's a, that's a bracket. That means all of this is to be construed as one main idea. Be strong. And everything in that is designed to help them be strong. What does being strong mean in this context? It means not being fearful. It means not letting their hearts be controlled by fear. It means not acting on that fear. Oh, brothers and sisters, what an amazing reversal we have here. Instead of being accursed by the nations, they're a means of blessing to the nations. And because of this coming blessing, they could persevere in that day. Oh, friends, We have so many blessings in the past from God. And we do well to remember them. It's good to go back and say, where have I seen God's hand of blessing today, yesterday, last week, last month, last year, last decade, last decades? Where have I seen God's hand? And we do well to remember those. Brothers and sisters, we do well to also remember what's the blessing that's coming. Because that's just as sure as the blessing that we've already received. And that blessing that's coming is designed to strengthen us so that we're not weary and that we're not overwhelmed and that we're not faint-hearted. Oh, brothers, God has been gracious in the past and He will be gracious in the future. Be strong. He will keep you even as he will keep Israel. Third calling he gives us, verses 14 and 15, because God has promised, be strengthened in trust. I've already alluded to it. You know one of the main chapters in the Bible, one of the key chapters in the Bible is Genesis chapter 12, where God makes his covenant with Abraham to make a nation through him that would be his, God's eternally, And along with Genesis chapter 12, another key section in the Old Testament. Don, I don't know if you're reading my notes today, but Deuteronomy 28 to 30. Uh, Don alluded to that in his Sunday school class this morning as well. Deuteronomy 28 to 30 delineates the covenant blessings under which Israel would experience the full promise of God. If they obey, he'll give blessing. And if they disobey, he will curse. And we find in the Old Testament the the playing out of that theme of blessing and cursing, blessing and cursing all through Israel's history. And verses 14 and 15 provide just another example of Deuteronomy 28 and 28 to 30. Thus says the Lord of hosts, 
Just as I purpose to do harm to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts, and I have not relented. Your fathers, your forefathers were disobedient and rebellious and I promised to do wrath to them. Where is that? Deuteronomy 28. Disobey me. And you won't experience my blessing. You will experience my discipline and my wrath. And I will not relent. Why? Because he's a just God. He can't. He has to. He can't let sin go unpunished. Or he wouldn't be a just God. You can't just ignore sin and say, oh, I know he's trying hard. It's okay. No. It's not okay. It's rebellion. And so God is faithful to himself. And he disciplines his people. And yet in the midst of God's righteous wrath, there's also grace. So, so much grace. In the same way that he was wrathful, verse 14, he acts in verse 15. Notice, did you notice what he said, verse 14? Just as I've been wrathful, in the same way, in same proportion, in in the same expression of my unchanging attributes, he says in verse 15, so I have again purposed in these days, To do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. Which days is he talking about? Again, I think he's talking potentially about the days of Zechariah. But even far more, he's talking about the coming days of of the millennial kingdom in verses 1 to 8. Remember, even we heard this in Roger's reading in Haggai chapter 2. I think it was verse 3. That they looked at the temple that was being rebuilt and they went, oh man... My translation, that ain't nothing. It's not like Solomon's temple. It's like half the size and half the glory and half the beauty. And God's promising something that will far exceed Solomon's temple. In that day, in those days, he said, I have purposed to do good to Jerusalem the house of Judah. The good that God will do will be as extensive and as significant as the wrath that they had experienced previously. Everything, everything, one writer says, God promised in the past in terms of judgment for Israel's rebellion against him was fulfilled. Therefore, everything God ordained and promised for Israel's future in terms of salvation and blessing will also be fulfilled. He was faithful to judge. He will be just as faithful to be gracious to those who have faith in him. You can trust him. Why is this revealed to the Israelites? Why does he talk to them about the coming blessings? Verse 15. So that they would not fear. Do not fear. I will be gracious. I will fulfill My promises. This is the second time in this passage that God has said, do not fear. We also find that same admonition in Haggai chapter 2 verse 5 and about 75 more times in the Old Testament. Do not fear. Why does he say do not fear? It's not because they're not afraid. He says do not fear because they are afraid. And they don't have to be. Now, how do you stop being fearful when something is compelling your fear? Not being fearful is not a matter of saying, Terry, don't be afraid. Nothing bad's going to happen. That doesn't work. It doesn't work at two in the morning. I know that. And it doesn't work any other time either, does it? Not being fearful from this passage we understand, is learning to evaluate the circumstance from God's perspective. On what basis could he say, don't be afraid? Because God's told them how it ends. 
For the Israelites in this day, God's solution was to mitigate their fear by reminding them of his final provision for them. The temple would be rebuilt. They would inhabit Jerusalem as God's people. And the temple and the city would be places of truth and holiness where everyone would live in safety. You're safe. And if you're safe, you don't have to fear. Freedom from fear and ability to trust is rooted in confidence in God's grace. I believe his promise. And when we know the end, we can persevere in the middle. My mom used to have a habit that was annoying to me as a kid. I'd see her reading a book and I'd say, Mom, I thought you just picked up that book. Are you already finished? I mean, I know you're a fast reader, but that's ridiculous. Oh, no, no, no. I'm reading the last chapter. Why are you reading the last chapter? You're going to ruin the book. No, I'm reading the last chapter to find out if the book is worth reading. This is the last chapter. And God reveals it to us so that we know life's worth living. You can be confident because he's told you the end. You can be confident to live in the middle now. One last calling that he gives us. Because God has promised. Be strengthened for transformation. Very quickly, verses 16 and 17. Because of these realities, these are the things you should do. Now he's addressing This whole issue of fasting. We fasted, we fasted, and aren't you proud of us for fasting? Can we stop now? The fasting wasn't even commanded. It was what they'd conjured up in their own minds about something that would make them righteous before God and make Him accountable to them. And He says, that's not what I want from you. That's not what's making you safe. It's my grace that is making you safe. And if you're trusting in my grace, these are the kinds of things you should be doing. And four things he identifies. Speak the truth with one another. In fact, we're going to find throughout this, these chapters, chapters 7 and 8, the repeated nature of the essentialness of truthfulness. Six times he refers to truth in these two chapters. They're to be truthful because they're related to one another. Speak the truth to one another. You're in one nation. You're bonded together. You get the same covenant blessings. Speak truthfully. Does that sound like anything else you've ever read in the Bible? It's, it's Ephesians chapter 4. This is where Paul gets that. Speak the truth to one another. Because you belong to one another. You're part of one another. You're bonded together in Christ. So both in the Old Testament and New Testament, we find this reality that truthfulness is fundamental to life. Speak the truth with one another. Second thing that they're to do, judge one another, excuse me, judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. So peace in your gates, referring to the formal judgments of the nation, everything you do legislatively ought to be truthful and just and fair and righteous. But I think he's even speaking beyond that. It's not just your legislative justice as you're ruling the nation, but all of your relationships within the nation ought to be characterized by truth and judgment. Let none of you devise evil in your heart. Even when suffering from others, they're not to commit evil and they're not even to desire evil. They're not to like evil. They're not to plan evil. Godlikeness and truthfulness is an inward issue of the heart supremely. He's saying don't not he's he's not just saying don't act in ugly ways towards one another. He's saying don't even think it, don't desire it, don't cultivate it, don't meditate on it. Let none of you devise evil in your heart and do not love perjury. It is evil to love falsehood and false things. Every deceitful action and every deceitful thought was to be shunned. They were not only not to do lying things, false things, they were not to love false things. Let me paraphrase that even more. They were not even to be attracted to false things. Now, if I was going to really park here and go from preaching to meddling, I would say something about 
our entertainment? And does our entertainment reflect that we love false things? Why should we not love false things? Why should we not be entertained by things that are not true? Because these are all what I hate, declares the Lord. He hates those things. And how could His people, Israel or the church, be drawn to those things and practice those things? All of these commands are reminders that what God wants is the lives of His people transformed and sanctified. Sanctification isn't just a New Testament principle. It's not an Old Testament principle. It's a Bible truth. God wants His people wherever they are, whenever they are, to be like Him. He wants them to be freed from the snares of Satan, from the bondage of sin. And friend, if you are with us this morning and you are not a Christian, that's what God has designed for you. That's what He wants you to know and to believe and to be. He wants you to be liberated from these things. And you can't do that on your own any more than Israel could do it by practicing their fasts four months a year for 70 years. It wasn't enough. What's enough? What's enough is to believe in Jesus Christ. To believe that He died on the cross. Not because He was a sinner, but because He absorbed your sin. He was the sin bearer, not a sinner. Taking your sin, absorbing the wrath of God against your sin... For all of eternity. So that you might be redeemed. And then he was resurrected from the grave. Demonstrating that God. Accepted the payment that he made for you. You must believe that. And you must believe that he is worth living for. And worth following. And when you believe that he is. Your payment for your sin. And you believe that he is worth following. Then He will save you and He will liberate you to do the very kinds of things He talks about in verse 17. What's your trouble today? What's your overwhelming pressure? What's your difficulty? And what are you believing about it? This came into my inbox this morning. From some of you may be aware of the blog site, The Art of Manliness. I need all the help I can get. So I read The Art of Manliness. And this morning's posts, post, he says this, Cancel your news debt. About news, he says, it is sensationalized, it's distracting. It offers a distorted, overly negative, focused future on reality. A picture of reality. It serves as pure entertainment versus opinion-changing information on a ratio of 500 to 1. Once you start paying attention to the news, you notice that a good portion of it does not, in fact, report the news at all. Rather, it is covering what it, what, rather than covering what is happening, it forecasts what could happen. There are endless stories done on future hypotheticals. Here's what might happen if the virus mutates, if he's impeached, if this company collapses, if we go to war, if they drop the nuke, if a meteor strikes the earth. Think back to this week, isn't he right? If, 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 if. Perhaps there seems to be little harm done in keeping up with such hypotheticals. After all, few but the very neurotic will panic over what are only potential outcomes. But there, is such a co- but there is a cost to such consumption, and it steadily accrues. Every headline produces another small drop of cortisol that by day, that day by day diminishes physical and mental health. Every scroll contributes to an us- unnecessarily groom- gloomy outlook. Every titillating ap- apocalyptic progro- prognostication about public life distracts from improving a private life that's devoid of native excitement. He's dead on. There is some news we ought to hear though. What's the news? I'm exceedingly jealous for Zion. And I will return. And I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. 
It's not what it looks like today. I get it. Go outside these walls. Go to your favorite news source. And you're not finding that kind of news. But go to this news source. And you're finding the most remarkable reversal. God will change it. And because he will change it. We can be strong. And not fear. Father thank you for these reminders. We need them. As much as Israel needed them. 2500 years ago. So we need them today. We are prone to worry, anxiety, fear, despair even. And these verses are a reminder to us that you've given us what we need. Let us, Father, be strong. Let us rest in you. Let us be confident that you will keep your promises. And that we, like Israel, will be safe. We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.